Friends, welcome to Leadosophy. You're here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. Today's show is going to be a real blockbuster. I think you're going to be real happy with this one. We're going to talk about blind spots. Leadership blind spots will probably be the biggest part of the topic. You may have some pilot followership blind spots. Maybe some, we are going to talk about some blind spots in the realm of technical competence because that's important as well. How do they develop? How do these blind spots come to be? What is their genesis? We're going to talk about all that stuff. We're going to watch a quick, that's about a two hour, 50 minute or two minute, 50 second YouTube video to explain a concept called the Johari window. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. Are you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution, you are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of leadosophy, Tim Wood. All right, friends, welcome back to leadosophy. I've already said you're here with an open mind, so you know that. Today, I want to talk about blind spots. Little, little, little story. Uh, my second year at Gonzaga in the in the Masters of Leadership program, I went down to with my class. We spent five days at St. Andrews Abbey in Valermo, California. It's in the Mojave Desert, probably about an hour and a half. Uh, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half from, from LA. And one of the, one of the first days at the monastery, this is a monastery of male Benedictine monks. And we went down there to see what kind of leadership lessons we can take away from the, uh, the monastic community. That was, that was the goal. One of the goals on this five day journey. <clears throat> so I think it was day two, maybe day two or day three. We did this exercise called the Johari window. And we're going to watch a quick video on, on what the Johari window is. Shout out Gabrielle Wong and the YouTube video you put together for this. Uh, more about 360 degree feedback, but you talk about the Johari window. I'm going to use that for, for leadosity. So shout out, shout out to you. I'll link it in my notes. But we did this exercise called the Johari window, and it was about exposing some character traits personality traits that we that we thought that maybe we possessed but no one else knew we had and then we would flip the exercise around and we would allow others to try to put forth what they thought they or how they saw us essentially how they perceived us personality traits character traits and we were we were seeing if there was some sort of maybe self-discovery where the perception others had of us might not quite align with the perception of ourselves. And there was definitely some overlap where like my personality traits that I thought I had, other people saw those. And there was definitely some things that I didn't know I was really like or how I acted that other people noticed in me that was new insight for me. They exposed the blind spot I had. And if you read a lot of literature on, on blind spots, especially from a leadership perspective, the context is usually self-awareness. It's usually dealing with 
how people perceive you, your how you act, how your personality traits, things like that, emotions. There's not a lot of literature on blind spots on the technical competence side, which I think is very important. Exactly, you know, the skills of your job, what you need to be successful in your technical craft. And I think there's a whole area, of a whole nother area of blind spots that are very important that we have to be aware of managers, leaders, followers, frontline workers, and just technical competent positions. How do those blind spots develop? Are people going to tell us if we have blind spots in our technical craft? Are we receptive to the feedback? I think just generally, sometimes we're scared of, of critical feedback. I think it stings sometimes. Man, I, I'm like that. I'm terrible with my wife when she gives she gives really good feedback a lot of times. We have a very good, I think we communicate very well with each other. And sometimes, you know, when, it, when I talk about, you know, sometimes whether it's philosophy or whatever, if I have an idea and she provides me feedback, if it's not in line with my exact mode of thinking, my, my frame, I, I tend to recoil and I don't always handle it so well. And that used to be one of my blind spots, but now I realize I do that. So it's no longer a blind spot. It's out in the open. So things like that, I think we can, we can work on and it's really hard to get feedback or have our blind spots exposed. And that's both leadership and followership. You know, from a follower's perspective, if you're getting feedback from a manager or frontline supervisor or the CEO or whatever, you know, sometimes it's hard to hear that feedback that you may be putting off a bad vibe or your decision-making process is not very effective or, you know, you're, you act too emotional on this, that, or the other, whatever it might be. And again, we talk about all the cognitive biases that come into play, which are real, whether it's imposter bias or, you know, whatever, where the other bias, I can't even remember the name of it, where you overestimate your abilities. I talked about this on the last episode. We often overestimate our own abilities. We overestimate our ability to make good, sound, moral, or ethical decisions where, where we'll, we will criticize other people. So there's a lot of areas I kind of want to touch on briefly as far as blind spots go. What is the definition of a blind spot, first of all? I think it's, I think it's something that we cannot see, but it's, it's more than just sight alone. What comes to mind for me is information or data that we do not know. And if we had this information or data, it would have personal or professional utility. And I'm talking positive or negative information or data. And this information or data is purposeful and relevant in the future. So there's some, there's some thoughts I'd jot down if, if I was going to define blind spots from a technical competence and a leadership competence standpoint, maybe a manager competence, follower competence. I think that's kind of a loose definition I was working on with, and there's other definitions out there, but this is, these are, this is me trying to formulate my understanding of blind spots. Again, positive or negative. It doesn't have to just be negative. It doesn't just have to be critical feedback. It could be feedback that exposes something good that we're doing a good behavior trait, a good character trait, good personality trait that we didn't realize we have. 
So the Jahari window, I'm going to play this quick video. Again, about two minutes, 50 seconds. You're either watching. If you're not watching, it's okay. You'll get the grasp of it by listening. Here we go. The Jahari window. The importance of feedback can be illustrated through the concept of the Jahari window. The Jahari window is a model created in 1955 by two American psychologists, Joseph Left and Harrington Ingham, hence the name. It is used to help people improve self-awareness and mutual understanding between individuals within a group. The Jahari window consists of four quadrants, the open self, blind self, hidden self, and unknown self, which correspond to the relationship between ourself and others. The open self is the part of ourselves which we are aware of and are known to others. We operate within this area naturally. This is the part of us which is an open book. The hidden self is the part of ourselves which we feel are too private to share with others, because they may also be embarrassing in some way. People may also be scared of discussing these areas due to feelings of vulnerability. The blind self is the part of ourselves which we do not know about, but others can see. It may be something that we imagine ourselves to be, but others do not observe in us at all. For example, a person who thinks that he is intelligent may in reality not actually be seen by others that way. Finally, the unknown self is the part of ourselves which nobody, not even ourselves, know about. This area is often known as our human potential. This may include abilities that are underestimated or untested due to a lack of opportunity, encouragement, confidence, or training. Uncovering this area may lead to the discovery of hidden talent. Note that in real life, these four quadrants are never equal in size and often change over time. When it comes to leadership development, we often want to increase people's open area. This is because people who have a large open area are able to inspire trust, are approachable and easy to talk to, and are seen as people who communicate openly and get along well with others. Established leaders will have larger open areas than new leaders, and they should help to facilitate increasing the size of new leaders' open areas. This is done through two things, self-disclosure and feedback. Self-disclosure expands the open area downward, decreasing the size of the hidden area. All right, you get the picture, or you get the Jahari window. I don't think we need to go much more, but that's just, I wanted to explain what the Jahari window was because I've actually participated in an exercise where with fellow colleagues where we got to talk about our blind spots, have our blind spots exposed. It was kind of fun. It was initially a little daunting in the beginning. Like I said, no one likes to talk openly about maybe what they might be lacking. But the more you do it, I think, especially, you know, I think we did this over about a two hour process. It was very enlightening. 360 degree feedback. I don't know if there's anyone out there who is in an organization that does 360 degree feedback where you are getting feedback, positive feedback, critical feedback from your peers, your the people who work for you, and the people you work for, that whole 360-degree process. I've never done it before, so I don't know how effective it is. So we'd love to hear some thoughts on, on that. We maybe do a show. It'd be nice to have someone on here one day who can talk about 360-degree feedback. So here's a few questions Leadosophy has about blind spots. And remember, when I, when I think of blind spots, I think of technical competence, leadership competence, manager competence, and follower, follower competence. We can have blind spots in all of those four areas. So how do they develop? How does a blind spot develop? 
and what is its origin? Are blind spots simply what we do not know? Information, data. Can we classify all blind spots under a lack of information or data, or should it be relevant information and data? And how do we determine what's relevant, whether to our technical side of our job or to leadership or management? So I want to dive into the technical competence side of blind spots, because I, again, I, I said this in the beginning, I think, I think from a contextual standpoint, it's not discussed enough. And I think early in, in a person's career, whatever job field or job uh, path they take, you're going to have way more technical competency blind spots than you will on the manager leadership side. So, and that's may not always be true. Maybe a, a late stage career technical competence thing. And I have two, two ideas or two stories. I want to talk about that. One is a lack of competence, technical competence. And another one involves too much competence, technical competence. So I spent probably of my 20 year coast guard career. I spent about 17 years of that in the, in the realm of search and rescue, search and rescue units going out short-range search and rescue on, on Coast Guard boats to affect rescues. And I had built up a significant amount of, of technical competence in the world of search and rescue and, and law enforcement as well, federal law enforcement. So in my 18th year in the Coast Guard, I got assigned to my first desk job as an aides-to-navigation officer. And as an aides-to-navigation officer, you deal with aides-to-navigation and a lot of people who don't know what those are, those are the buoys you see out on, on waterways, red buoys, green buoys. And I had very little technical knowledge of the aids to navigation side of the Coast Guard. Aids to navigation is one of the Coast Guard's 11 statutory missions. I had very little experience on aids to navigation or in that mission set. So when the Coast Guard put me in this position to be the aids and navigation officer and overseeing three different units underneath me. It was two aids to navigation shore units and one 65 foot ice breaking tug. When the coast guard put me in position to oversee these three units, it was very daunting. I knew that my technical competence was almost zero, but yet I had to oversee and manage the operational side of these units, their schedules, how they serviced aids to navigation in the spring and the fall. This was up in, in Connecticut. And it was intimidating. So my blind spot was for many who were working for me as their aids navigation officer at, a, at another unit. Some of those people did not know I had a severe lack of knowledge or had a knowledge deficit in the field of AIDS navigation. Some did. A lot of people knew me from other parts of, of the Coast Guard. Geographically speaking, they knew of me, knew units I'd been at. They knew my background. So they knew up front, it was not a blind spot. They knew I lacked technical competence. And it wasn't a blind spot for me that I, that they had this knowledge because I knew, I knew that there were people out there, more senior people, especially at those three Coast Guard units, the people who were in charge, who were in command, I knew that they knew I was coming in 
or would be overseeing them with this lack of technical competence. My fear was I didn't know how they were judging me or how they were perceiving of me, perceiving me. Were these senior enlisted Coast Guard members, were they talking behind my back about how I didn't have technical competence? Were they making fun of me? When they were calling me on the phone, did they have this preconceived notion or this assumption that I wasn't going to have an answer when they called me? And were they going to laugh about that before they even called me? These were all unfounded fears. These are the things where the self-awareness side, our self-concept, we can antagonize over this over and over and over again. It's that movie in the mind that we play that I talked about on the last episode. I had some great people that worked with me at those, those outlying units, those three different units. The ones that knew, the more senior enlisted people that knew I lacked that technical competence, they were very gracious about it. So when I first went out to visit these units to introduce myself formally as their AIDS navigation officer, I made the decision to take as one of the first talking points of my discussion with the entire crew, I took the technical competence blind spot off the table. The first five minutes or so of the conversation was besides just telling them I'm appreciative of what they do, it was explaining to them my background and how that when it came to the worlds of Coast Guard aids to navigation, that statutory mission, I didn't know much about it. I didn't know how many answers I could provide initially. I knew my learning curve and technical competence was going to be steep. And I, I, I did a good job. I feel like I did a good job of meeting that challenge. I, I read a lot. I asked a lot of questions. I think some of those commanders, unit commanders who fielded my phone calls constantly, sometimes I probably called them too much and probably my questions were really stupid, but I wasn't afraid to ask stupid questions. And I think a lot of that came with the length, the time span I was in the Coast Guard at that point. I had risen through the ranks. I had become a chief warrant officer and I wasn't afraid to ask dumb questions and maybe someone with, you know, eight years experience or 10 years experience may have been a little more timid for their lack of knowledge or lack of technical competence, but I didn't care at that point. I didn't know how much longer I was going to serve in the Coast Guard. I, I had already gotten the itch to, to pack it in and pursue other, other avenues in my life, other aspirations that didn't involve military service. So there was a little bit of that fear off the table of looking silly that a lot of people, you know, it's, hey, no one likes to admit that they don't know a lot. And I was there. I didn't know a lot in one one side of the Coast Guard. So that was an instance where I took all the blind spots off the table on my technical competence side. Every single member of every of all those three units knew that I lacked a significant amount of, of technical competence. But I think I closed a lot of the gap or enough of the gap where I could have intelligent conversations, I guess, and not just sound like a bumbling idiot, which I did in the beginning, probably the first couple months. I had no idea what I was talking about. I tried not to be an imposter either. Uh, if I did know some information, I would always explain, hey, this is my understanding of what I've read in a book, the book, the manual knowledge. 
but practical application in the field of aids navigation and actually performing the mission. Again, it's just like theory and practice. Sometimes they align, sometimes they don't align. Another story about technical competence blind spot for me was, and it wasn't necessarily a blind spot for me because again, I was aware of this, of a potential blind spot. Again, my last two years in, in the world of search and rescue, again, I had accumulated many over, well over a decade of search and rescue experience. And I was the commanding officer of a unit in New York. And I knew that I had spent so much time in the field of search and rescue and search and rescue shore units that my competency level could at times be a hindrance. Why? Sometimes when you are doing one job long enough or for a long enough time span, you start to maybe miss things. It's kind of like I always equate it to you driving down the highway on autopilot. Maybe you're taking a 15-hour road trip and you've driven like 10 miles and before you know it, you have no idea. Like you pass the rest area. It's kind of like that autopilot. I think it's easy if you don't challenge yourself to fall into this comfort zone when you've been doing the same thing for a long time. Comfort, I always say, leads to complacency. There's a difference between being confident and being comfortable in your job and your knowledge base. You can be confident, I think, and I think still stay sharp, right? But I think once you get comfortable, at least in the Coast Guard world where you're doing dangerous missions, when you get comfortable, I think that's when the accidents happen. So you really have to watch out for that. But when I had new people show up to the unit, junior members, junior enlisted members that would come from most likely out of boot camp or new units in general, when I met with everybody within the first week or two of when they showed up to the unit and I sat down in my office, we'd have a conversation. You were welcome to the unit. This is who I, who I am. Tell me about yourself. But in that conversation, I would have this blind spot, technical competence conversation with them and I would tell them that I've been doing this job for a long time and fresh eyes are good when you're in a new job because sometimes if you're fresh, if you're new, if you're doing it, you know, they may see things that I don't see anymore or just kind of just noise to me because I've been doing it for so long. So I really harped on this idea of speaking up if they see something that they don't understand or even a safety thing that may not look right or feel right intuitively to them. I try to create a, an environment where they were not afraid to, to bring those things to attention all the way to the highest level, which was me at that unit, which is difficult. You know, it's the paradox of the military. I always say you, you have a junior member who goes through boot camp and they are screamed at, yelled at, told to obey authority for eight straight weeks, square their corners, yes, sir, no, sir. They have no voice, hardly whatsoever. And then they arrive at their first search and rescue unit in the Coast Guard and they're, they're told by their commanding officer like, hey, if you see something wrong, tell me. I may not see everything. I may have blind spots. They're probably thinking or looking at me like, you're crazy, I ain't saying anything. I think that's a, probably a real thing. Probably tough for, for junior people in the military to sometimes speak up when you're, you, you have an organization that's built, it's a structure built on obedience. And then you have an officer telling them, hey, 
Tell me if you see, if I tell you something, it doesn't make sense. Question it. Question authority. Well, that doesn't square with obedience to authority. So I always call that the paradox of military service. So that's my, those are my two blind spot stories. We all have blind spots. On a long enough timeline, all blind spots will never be exposed. Just remember that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, all the way up until the day our, our lives are over, we will die with blind spots. Blind spots that are not known to others. Blind spots that are not known to ourselves. And again, it's just the nature of blind spots. So that's all I have on blind spots. Again, shout out to Gabrielle Wong for that video on Jihari Window. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any ideas on blind spots, send them my way. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Leadosophy. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button and check out leadosophy.com and learn more about Tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership. We'll see you next time.